0: I was over at Stanford Shopping Center yesterday, as perhaps most of you were, judging from the crowd, (laughs) and there was these two ladies in front of me in the line, and uh, their remark, rather loudly to the other, was, this is crazy. And I reflected on those words and thought, you know, if you don't know the meaning of Christmas, and all you see is this mad, rush, stress-filled month, maybe it is crazy. So our purpose today for you who the Lord brought to be with us, is to try to explain why it isn't crazy, what Christmas is all about. I want to highlight one thing for those of us who come here seeking. We're going to be giving our authority from one source, the Bible. We're dealing with a subject today that I'm going to tell you it's been abused over and over again. I I even hesitate to talk about it, but we have to talk about it in order to understand Christmas. And I would have you view it this way. We're looking at the Bible. We have to ask, is the Bible true? Not so much does this doctrine move me. Is it relevant? But is it true? And if it's true, what am I going to do about it? So in that context, would you bow with me in prayer? We'll ask God's blessing on what we're about. Lord, thank you for calling us together at Christmas time. It's good to have your house full, to be crammed in here with people eager, expectant, or searching. We pray you'll bless this time together, that no matter what we expected when we came in here, may we be surprised by having met the risen living Savior, Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. Concern about Y2K and the new millennium has created a kind of hysteria as we've watched it uh, throughout the country. People uh, building uh, caches of food and water and guns and all of these things, expecting some cataclysmic, uh, cataclysmic moment in history to occur. At midnight, December 31st. In the midst of all the hysteria, I've calculated there's one very healthy reaction from a Christian standpoint. You know there's been a renewed interest in our subject this morning, namely in the biblical teaching about the historical return of Jesus. And this isn't just among Christians. It's very much among the secular world. A best-selling book entitled Left Behind deals with this, what we call the second coming of Christ, the time when Christians, dead and alive, will be caught up together with Jesus into heaven. And the left behind part refers to those left in the world when the restraining force of the church is removed. And that, if you really forecast, that could be rather a, uh, an astounding happening to have the forces of good removed from the world. But I need to tell you, even as we begin, from boyhood, I've been very sensitive to how this event has been abused by mainly the church. Uh, one very noted uh, media preacher was on CNN the other day saying that he believes on December 31st, there's going to be a huge, um, uh, de- uh, what well, you might call it, destruction of our computer system. It's going to fall, and then there's going to be worldwide chaos, God's judgment on sin, and then Jesus is going to come. That's only one example of somebody doing what the Bible says not to do. And that's to set dates. One way we abuse this subject. Listen to what the Bible says. But as to the times and the season, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves know well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In other words, we don't know. And when people say there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as travail upon a woman with child. But you are not in the darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. Well, happily, you know, in spite of the abuse, a recent Gallup poll reveals a significant number of Americans believe in the second coming of Jesus, even in the secular world, which I find rather strange. CNN featured a roundtable of various theologians recently who discussed this event. Why we're doing it today in this church family is, is twofold. First of all, I I want us to know what the Bible says so we don't fall victim to hysteria, distortions, or myth, and they're abundant. But you know, even more importantly, I'd like us to know why we're celebrating this event so we won't just say it's crazy. I want us to realize we're not just looking back to a cute little picture of the baby in the manger. We're really here to look forward. Christmas is about looking ahead, not back, about this babe that became a teacher, God in the flesh, A crucified Savior, a resurrected Lord, who's coming back again to save the world. That's not science fiction. It's the greatest fact in history, and we're going to kind of look into it today in a hope that that will enrich and bless your Christmas, because I believe whatever brought you here today, that was God's providence, and he wanted to have you hear what he said in his word. First, the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming again in a dramatic historical event. Christ's return to earth to establish his kingdom, to bring judgment against sin is one of the most central beliefs of the Christian. It's almost on every page of the New Testament and yet strangely strangely neglected in most churches. I seldom preach on it. The Bible describes this event as follows. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a mighty shout, with a soul-stirring cry of the archangel and the great trumpet call of God, and the believers who are dead will be the first to rise to meet the Lord. Then we who are alive and remain on the earth will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and remain with him forever. You know, on one side, we could add the word crazy to what the lady said in the shopping center about such a picture. To thinking people, this sounds almost beyond science fiction, unless it's from God and it's true. And that's what we really struggle with when we read about this. Is the, not, not, not is it relevant, but is it true? Does the Bible really contain the word of God? Is it true? Jesus said, when the Son of Man will come in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon the throne of his glory and before him will be gathered all nations. So he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. And then he puts it in sort of in a personal way. I go to prepare a place for you and I'll come back and I'll take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. That's Jesus speaking. As the church developed, Paul later describes the event this way. Lo, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And so goes the record of this event throughout the Bible. Now, interestingly, if you listen, the Bible refers to it as a mystery, A mystery in the Bible is not a secret for which we're still seeking an answer. A mystery is a divine secret that's been revealed but to those who have made this leap of faith to trust Jesus as Savior. If we know Jesus, then when we think about his return, that doesn't seem so strange. But since the beginning, and all of us have been there perhaps somewhere on our journey, there have been those who have rejected, ignored, or scoffed at this hope, at this fu- about this future event. In fact, you know, many Christian leaders today are saying this event is no longer relevant to the modern mind. You won't hear about it. They don't teach about it. It's just a dead doctrine. And yet again, the issue confronting us is not whether or not it's relevant, but is Christ's return true? And if it is, it has huge implications for us. If it isn't, Christmas and almost everything else about Christianity has no meaning at all. We're nothing more than just a group of people who have a moral teaching with no meaning behind it, no power to follow it. A second truth. The expectation of our Lord's return should provide comfort and encouragement to believers. The Bible says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven, so comfort and encourage each other with this news. When I was um, a young kid, and I was raised in a rather conservative church, uh, they preached about this often. And I can tell you, every time a preacher talked about Jesus coming and talked about heaven, it scared me to death. First of all, I was young. In order to get to heaven, you had to die, and I didn't want to do that. And secondly, um, it just didn't fit. It was every time I heard, it made me sweat, scared me, And that shouldn't happen in church. But I'll tell you even one more amazing story. And this is, some of you have heard this, but it's absolutely true. I was eight years old. I was at this little church down in Hollywood. I even remember the name of the preacher. You don't, most of us don't remember a sermon by Wednesday, but I remember this one. (laughs) And he's dead now, so I can tell you, his name was Dr. Fagan. And he was saying, and he was looking right at me, it was a small church, I think he was. But he was saying, you know, if you kids aren't Christians, and your mom and dad are, Jesus could come in the middle of the night and you'd wake up and they would be gone and the house would be empty and you would be left behind. And then he gave an invitation to become a Christian. (laughs) You know who was first down that aisle? I, I, I swear that was absolutely true. And from that point on, I've been scared to death about this doctrine. I'm scared about preaching it to you today if it's abused. But you know, The future plans of Jesus for us, his followers, are not a scare tactic. I wouldn't want to frighten one person into the kingdom of Jesus. Neither would he. Knowing that our Lord is coming back is like knowing the last chapter of a very exciting novel. And you have all these scenarios going on where you can't really believe that the good guys are going to win. But you know the last chapter. So you don't sweat too much. there, There seems to be no way. And the whole issue of our Christian hope is to know, in spite of all the media coverage with all the gloomy forecasts about what could happen in the world, we know the last chapter. And that is that Jesus, the resurrected Savior, the forces of good and love and life, are going to win the battle. What does that mean for you? Well, we hear about nuclear and chemical warfare, pollution, overpopulation, violence, terrorism, injustice, immorality. We worry about our kids. We worry about death. In fact, we see the implications of life. I'm realizing my body isn't as beautiful as it used to be. Good friends get sick. Children die. Some of you are grief-filled as we approach Christmas because someone you love very much isn't here this year. And on and on it goes. This life, as good as it is in Silicon Valley, you know it really isn't good enough. And the wonderful thing about this doctrine is it's not to frighten us, it's to give us hope beyond aging and death and terrorism and fear, to say God's going to have the last word and because we know that's true, we can live optimistic, joy-filled lives. And you know, for those who either don't know about or have rejected the hope, maybe it explains why so many escape into all kinds of addictions and Distractions, and we make more money and we build bigger houses and we go on bigger vacations and we keep doing, doing and having and having and it still isn't enough. Maybe it's why pessimism is rampant among many of the secular prophets who claim the world is galloping towards some catastrophic end and they see no answer. And maybe it's why so many live in this life as if this is all there is. So if heaven's going to happen, it has to happen now in three score years and ten. And we make these frantic attempts to make heaven happen here. And we get very depressed if it doesn't. And the problem is, it can't. Now, I'm concerned that even Christians fall into this trap of giving so little thought to life beyond this world. You know, maybe one of the reasons we're here today is that we finally made contact with the fact God implanted something in us. His image, which means we have a hunger for something beyond anything this world can give. We were designed for eternity, not just to live three score years and ten, kind of wind down like a clock and then croak, die. That's not why we're here. No wonder perhaps even Christians who've been blessed these last few years with incredible prosperity, and some of us have, beyond our wildest dreams, and we've done it all, and we've bought it all, and we've been there, and then we say, is this all there is? Or maybe it's like the movie, this is as good as it gets. We're going to be frustrated if this is all there is. That hunger in our soul is what Jesus speaks to when he gives this hope for his coming again. You and I, because we know the last chapter, can live in this world with all of its almost daily challenges and uncertainties. We can live with confidence and we can live with hope and optimism. Again, God's plans for his followers are for good and not for evil to give us a future and a hope. And that's why Christians ought to be the happiest people on earth. Why we ought to be celebrating all the time. Why why I'm a fanatic for church when Doug said, have a good time. Some of us are offended that we didn't come to church to have a good time. Why not? This is the place where the greatest source of joy is all about. I think in heaven we're going to party. And if you don't like to party, you probably won't like heaven. (laughs) You see, because we know the meaning of the season, we find comfort and we find hope and we find joy. And I can tell you for one preacher, we're not trying to scare anybody. But finally, there is a dimension of divine judgment Connected with this event that's related to you and choices you make. You see, to some degree, those pessimistic about the future of our world are correct. According to Jesus, this world will not evolve by education, technology, or by any other human uh, means into utopia. In fact, listen to Jesus again speak of the last times. For there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. And if those days had not been cut short, No one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. You know, what's surprising to me, and if you think about it, you might agree, how people who are pessimistic and hopeless about the future will still reject right off as myth this blessed certainty Jesus offers to those who believe. There's no other hope out there, and yet without even examining the facts, many people will just write this off also, so they live in gloom. Well, interestingly, the Bible predicts that would happen too. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires, and they will say, "Where is this coming?" He promised. And ever since our fathers died, everything goes on, it has has since the beginning of creation. The latest Time magazine featuring Jesus for the year 2000 is the latest in distortions and skepticisms about the biblical truth of who Jesus is and his coming kingdom. And if you'll notice their authority. For Jesus, on the front cover, is a novelist. Interesting. But how about you? Does the fact of our Lord's return encourage and comfort you? Does it frighten you? Do you write it off as irrelevant myth? Or are you so wrapped up in this world that you you can't even turn on to listen to it? I again say the issue is not, is it relevant, but if it's true, is it true? And if it's true, what are you going to do about it? Personally, I'm concerned about those who reject God's offer of forgiveness of a relationship with himself and life eternal. It's sort of like in the days of Noah when intellectuals scoffed and Noah urged people to get aboard the ark of God. Well, it had never rained. It was absurd to think about needing a boat in the middle of the desert. So most people, the intellectuals, rejected it. And you know what happened? Those who wrote it off perished. Not because God killed them, they just rejected the ark, the source of their salvation. And that's why the Bible says, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Some of you might have read C.S. Lewis, one of his books, The Great Divorce, is a beautiful metaphor of this. He said there's a group of people in hell, whatever you think of that, and they had a chance to climb on a bus and go to heaven for a day. And if they wanted to stay there, they could. So they all got on the bus, went to heaven, spent a day in heaven. And you know what? At the end of the day, everybody got back on the bus and wanted to go back to hell. Separated from God is my definition. Why? Because for the same reasons they rejected it in this life, they rejected it in the next. I need to tell you, in every Seekers and Joiners class, there are those who say, how can a loving God reject or condemn anybody? And I want to correct that. A loving God In John 3, 16 said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God does not reject anybody. Nobody's excluded. Nobody has a track record so bad that Jesus can't forgive. You know, the only people who will ever be separated from God are those who choose to climb back on the bus and go back to where we are. We will be separated from God because that's where we want to be and we'd be miserable in heaven and we'd be miserable with those who follow Jesus. It's us, it's not God. God's heart is broken like any parent over any child who wanders away and won't come home. And you just need to know that. The Bible says the cross of Jesus is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who believe is the power of God leading to salvation. My prayer really for today would be twofold. I trust we who are Christians that we found a new reason to be joy-filled this season. That When we hear somebody in line saying this is crazy, well, you know, it's really not if we know why. And I trust that your celebration this Christmas will be rooted in the depth of looking ahead, looking beyond all the issues you bring here of grieving and loss and aging and death and and burdens and stresses to the fact that the last chapter is God has plans for me and they're good and not for evil. And therefore I have a future and a hope and I can be happy. And then I would hope for those of us who come seeking today, you know, this place is wide open for those who want to struggle with doubt, ask big questions. But you know, my greatest desire is that Somehow, by God's grace, if you've never taken that step of faith to examine the facts and then to ask, what am I going to do about them, that today might be the day when you reach out and say, I realize I need Jesus. I'm going to take that leap of faith. The sad thing, you know, every year I give the invitation to get on the ark. And every year when someone says no, something changes in our heart. A hardening takes place. And a person can reach a point where it doesn't even get to you anymore, the fact that you don't know Jesus. And I would hope that this year might be the time when you step from, light, from darkness to light, from hopelessness to hope, and come aboard with us who know Jesus Christ. You know, as I look back on my life, even though that preacher was probably out of whack at eight years old, scaring a little eight-year-old to death... Somewhere along the line, I did find Jesus. And choosing him as my Savior was the greatest decision I ever made in time or eternity. And if you talk to any Christian in this congregation, they'd say the same thing. In a hundred years from now, that will be the only decision that really matters to any of us. So, what about you? Don't be left behind. I invite you, as God does, and why he brought you here today, to become part of that great multitude where one day we're going to see Jesus come. We're going to live fully until that time. We don't set dates, but when he comes, we're going to behold him. And I want everybody, as God does, to be with us on that moment. Let's take just a few moments. I have no idea how God's word impacts your heart because every one of us are different. You know your needs, you have your fears, you have your doubts. But maybe God spoke to you in a way that you want to make a response. And I thought just a few moments of silence in the middle of a festival would give you a chance, if you heard that voice, to say yes to Jesus. I'm going to get aboard the ark. Let's bow in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you you didn't call us today as a herd of people. You called us here one by one. You know us by name. You've been knocking at our door through the years. You love us as a child, is loved by a parent. That your head over heels in love with us. I pray, therefore, that those of us who felt you knock on the heart's door will open it and invite you in. We're looking forward so richly, O oh Lord Jesus when our faith becomes sight on that day when we will behold you in all your glory. Amen.